If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4. And our passage specifically today is 35 to 41. We're going to read, we're going to read Mark chapter 4 in its entirety. We're going to read all of Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, turn there and follow along with me. And I trust that you will see why we're going to read all of this together in just a few moments. But let's begin reading Mark chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. In his own teaching, he said to them, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it, and other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and it, since it did not have depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and that they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? And not understand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to be to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, and as they were able to hear it, 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And now here comes our text for today. On that day, when evening had come, he, sat, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, they took with them in the boat just, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with them, him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have heard your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to truly hear it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, that we would hear your warnings, that we would trust your promises, we would heed your commands, and that we would love and fear the God who is presented to us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have Jesus is... Jesus tells great parables. He's sitting... The people are sitting by the sea. Jesus gets into a boat, and on the boat, he speaks great parables to people who are on the, on the ground... Uh, around the sea, on the shore, and there's even some people in boats listening to him. And he tells parable after parable. And then, after this day is done, Jesus tells his disciples, let's go across this sea to the other day. Now, Mark wants to make very clear to us that this is happening on the same day. Mark wants us to connect these parables to what's about to happen on that boat. Mark says, on that day. He wants us to know it wasn't another day. It was this day. He wants to connect the parables to this event, Jesus on the sea with his disciples. Mark also says, just as Jesus was, just as he was. Why would it say that? Basically saying, immediately, Jesus didn't go on to the shore and pack some things and get on the boat he wants us to know that this is the next thing. This is part of the same story. He wants us to know that this is happening and essentially that this story is basically the fruition, the fulfillment. It is a true story. It's things that happen, but it actually serves as the final parable in this list of parables that Jesus tells his disciples. And so... Jesus and his disciples are on this boat after he had preached many things to this crowd and they're on their way across the sea and they set off at sunset. And so before they get to the other side, it is already dark. Jesus is tired and so he goes into the bottom underneath the stern of the boat and he's asleep. And while he's asleep in the middle of the night, a great windstorm arises on them and it is so great that his disciples who were seasoned fishermen, not all of them, of course, but some of them were seasoned fishermen, they were terrified. They knew that this is the kind of storm that could end their lives. And so they wake Jesus up and they're very upset with him. Why are you asleep? 
Don't you know what's happening? Don't you care about us? Jesus wakes up. He stands in front of the sea and the wind, and he says, peace, be still. And wouldn't you know it, the wind stops and also the sea stops, and it is smooth as glass. And then he turns his disciples and he rebukes them for having no faith. And their response is even greater terror than they had from the sea. We also see a great connection between this event and the event of the story of Jonah. Jonah also went into a boat. Jonah, fleeing the word of God, running from God, disobeying God, trying to get away from God, gets into a boat and he falls asleep, pretty sure that he had gotten away from God. God can't get him because he's on a boat and he's going away from Jerusalem. He's going away from Israel. And so he falls asleep with a pretty wicked sense of confidence. I don't have to fear God. I'm far away from him. I'm on a boat. God can't get me. And then a great storm also comes up, also at the hand of God. The kind of storm that also made the sailors on that boat fear for their lives. Seasoned sailors terrified for their lives. And they wake Jonah up. Why are you sleeping? You should get up. And the rest of us are praying to our gods. You should also get up and pray to your God. And the storm is miraculously calmed when Jonah is thrown into the sea. And wouldn't you know it, these seasoned sailors see the storm calmed and they're, it says, exceedingly terrified. They're even more afraid after the sea has been calmed than they were when the sea was an outrage. And so we are meant to see more than, not less than, but more than the event that is taking place here. This is telling us something about Jesus that we ought to have ears to hear. And our first point is this, the great calamity facing the church. The great calamity facing the church. Jesus is on a boat with his church, with the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. He's on a boat with them. And a great windstorm arose. Now, we're not told that it's a miraculous windstorm, but it doesn't need to be. Because God is in control of all of all things. Jesus, God is not just in control of those miraculous things. He's in control of everything, great or small. Every single windstorm, every storm that happens is at God's control. It is what we would call the ordinary providence of God. We had a lightning storm this morning. Who did that come from? It came from God. But it was the ordinary providence of God that brought it at just the right time for Jesus' identity to be revealed to his disciples. This was no accident. This was God intentionally intervening and bringing a great storm, a storm that threatened their lives. Just like Jonah's storm, it was brought at the hand of God. And so it was essentially the final parable of this lesson, the summary of all the lessons that Jesus had just been teaching. The storm was filling the boat Fishermen believed that they would perish. The calamities that were facing them were real. 
The disciples were not terrified of nothing. There weren't little ripple waves coming and they were terrified. These were actually real calamities coming at them. And the same is true with the church, with the people of God. They, we often face real dangers. The calamities facing the church are strong. We sing an amazing grace through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. God leads the church through great, powerfully wicked, terrible storms. He leads us through those. There are many great dangers that the church faces. There are wars. There are rumors of wars. There are great persecutions that the church has been through and is already and is now facing again and will face. The church faces revolutions, revolutions in governments. The church in the West is facing a great revolution right now, a couple of them. There's the great revolution of life and death, a great revolution where you are more kind if you love death and you encourage and kill people than if you love life. An, a, an upheaval where right is wrong and wrong is right, where you are kind and compassionate if you tell a teenager or an old person, you should probably die and we will help you do that. And you are a wicked, uncaring person if you say you shouldn't die. Turn to the Lord and he will help you live. We are also facing a revolution of gender and sexuality where we are denying what God has made incredibly plain, things you don't need the Bible to see, that God has created man and woman in his image in two wonderful genders, not the same, distinct, different, and equal. These are revolutions, great, powerful waves hitting the church. The church also faces natural disasters, things like famines and earthquakes and floods economic disasters, tragic loss of life, maybe because of collisions and accidents, maybe because of cancer or other health problems like heart attacks. The church also faces great temptations. Great temptations come across us. Some of them we're expecting. We're expecting that wave to hit us. And we're prepared for that temptation to sin. I know that temptation's going to come. I know it's going to hit me today. And I'm going to fight against it. I'm prepared for it. But there's other temptations that seem to come out of nowhere. We're not expecting that temptation to face our faith and holiness and love and trust in God. We're not expecting that great wave to come and hit us and wrestle our eyes off of the sweetness of the gospel of Christ. There are many things that assail us, many great waves. The church, as it were, is a great sea, a great ship, sorry, in a great sea with great waves crashing against us. And this is true of the church. Christ has only one church. All the people who he's ever saved by giving them faith in his death and resurrection. It's also true of individual churches, local churches. They face great Waves smashing against them. But dear Christian, it's also true of individual Christians. Great waves assail us. Great persecutions, great dangers, and great temptations face us. And we need to see that all of these storms are from the hand of God. 
whether natural, things like cancer, things like famine, or moral, like cultural revolutions, like temptations, we need to understand that all of these storms are in the hand of God and even the devil, the great enemy of the church, is on the leash of the Lord. And he even sends him and ordains him to bring troubles to the church. These are in the hand of God. We need to see all of these things as from the hand of God, dear brothers and sisters. We absolutely need to see this is true. The waves that assaulted the disciples that day on the sea, they were from the hand of God. Now we're not to do this to blame him. Why are these waves hitting the church? Why is it that there is evil in the world, natural evil and moral evil? Why is it? Well, we know it's because of the curse that has fallen on the world because mankind has fallen into sin in Adam and since Adam as well. The world is under the curse of sin. Some of these waves are because of the sin of others. Some of this, these waves are, the sin of our, are because of our own sin. But we need to know that these are all from God's hand, no matter where they come from, they come from God, in order that we might rest in his sovereignty. Because if these waves, all of these waves, whether it's that rainbow wave, or it's a wave of famine or cancer, if it comes from his hand, then it's wise. Now, the wave itself might not be wise. We know it's not wise. The LGBTQ revolution and the revolution in life and death is not wise, but it comes from the hand of someone who is incredibly wise. It is very purposeful. It is intentional. And therefore, it is good that this wave has hit the church. And it comes because of his steadfast love, which never changes. This wave hits us, whether it's cancer or persecution or financial loss, this wave hits us from the hand of somebody who loves us enough to die for our sins. And therefore, we know this wave is actually controlled. It's a controlled wave. It's not out of control. Of course, we want that sea to be, that sea to be calmed. But it's not like we're going from an uncontrolled storm to a controlled calm. No, no, no. We pray that God would calm that storm, but we were, what we're wanting is that there's a controlled storm, which it is, to a controlled calm. Which brings us to our next point, the calm of the sower. And here we're getting that word sower. We're calling Jesus the sower. We're stealing that from the parable that he just told. The calm of the, storm, of the sower. And here we see Jesus is sleeping. Where is the Son of God in that storm? Jesus is asleep. Now, God never sleeps. He never tires. But Christ is both God and he is man. And in his human nature, in his man nature, he's asleep. Now, why is Jesus asleep? Well, the first reason is that he needs sleep. He's a real human. He's like, he was just like you and I. He had needs. He had the ability to suffer. He had the ability to be tired. And he had the ability to be Afraid. Yet he sleeps because he's not afraid. As a human, he trusts in the sovereignty of God. Jesus was the most human 
whoever humaned. He's the most human human who had ever humaned. He is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Now, the waves crashed against the first Adam. The first head of creation. The waves crashed against Adam. The waves of temptation crashed against Adam. And he rocked so hard that he overturned. He was capsized by the waves of temptation. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted and rested in the sovereignty of God from whose hand that waves, the waves and winds had come from. I want you to notice that this is a different calm than Jonah's calm. Jonah was calm and asleep in a storm that came from God, and so was Jesus, but it's a different calm. Jonah's calm was a foolish thought, the foolish calm, a stupid calm that he had successfully escaped God's hand. I can rest assured I am safe from God. God can't touch me, and that's why I'm able to sleep. But Jesus' calm, Jesus' rest is in the glorious thought, that not that he was away from God's hand, but that he was safe within it. Jesus didn't need to fear death because his time had not come. He knew he would die on the cross for the sins of his bride, the church. He would lay down his life. It wouldn't be taken from him. He would die not one minute sooner than the Lord had ordained. But even when Jesus' time to die would come years later, it wasn't death that he feared. He feared the cross. The Bible makes incredibly clear that Jesus feared the cross, but it wasn't death that Jesus feared. Feared. What was it that Jesus feared as he was looking to the cross? He feared the wrath of God that he would receive on the cross. He knew it wasn't just an ordinary death that he would die, but he would take all the damnation for all the sins that his bride, the church, had ever sinned and would ever sin. And therefore, because Jesus faced our damnation, the waves of God's wrath for our sin, since he faced them for us on the cross, dear Christian, we have nothing to fear and not even death. Because death is still an enemy that we should hate. Contrary to what the cultural revolution tells us, death is an enemy we should hate, but it is a captured enemy. It is a slave of God that does his bidding and all it can do, this enemy of God, can usher God's children into his presence. Because Christ faced the wave of God's wrath instead of us on the cross. Now, dear non-Christian, it may be that you are not afraid of your death. It may be that you're not afraid of God, but your sleep, your rest, your peace is as foolish as Jonas. There is a great wave that's coming down on you, bearing down on you the wrath of God for your sin. Oh, I don't think I'm God's enemy. The Bible says you are, and in your heart you know it. You know you've sinned against him. You know you're guilty. You know you bear the wrath of God for your sin. You know it's coming against you if you would only wake up There is a great storm of God's wrath bearing down on you and you need to wake up and turn to Christ 
who would face it instead of you. And then your peace and your rest, which is now foolish, can be replaced with wise rest and peace. Or do you know that you are a sinner who has sinned greatly against God and you deserve the wrath of God? Oh, but I have a Savior who already bore that for me. He has calmed that storm by facing it. Now, I wonder if you noticed another connection between this event and the parables that Jesus told. Did you notice the word sleep is also in one of the parables that Jesus told? Do you remember that? Do you see that? What is the sower who sows the seed into the ground? What does he do after he sows that sleep? Does he sit there biting his fingernails and worrying? What does he do? Sleeps. Not because he gives up. Not because he doesn't care. But because he knows there is a crop. There will be a harvest. And it's out of his hands. It will happen. Because it will happen. He does his work. And he leaves the rest up to what is in God's hands. And Jesus is the sower. He knows that his work as the Savior of the church will not fail. He knows it is his job to live the perfect life. To have the perfect record so he can give that perfect record to his bride. And then he also knows is he's, going to, he's supposed to die for her sins so he can take her wicked record and then he's going to rise from the dead. And that is the gospel. That's the seed. And he knows because he's read the word of God, he knows it will bring a massive harvest. The gospel will spread around the world. It will build a church, a massive church of all nations, even Dutch people. And the gates of hell will not overcome that church. It will endure through trials. He will build his church. And so Christ in his human nature will be able, was able to sleep. Because he knows that God's not sleeping. And he knows the storm and the boat are both in God's hands. And he knows that nothing's going to be able to separate the church from the love of God. And the waves are from God and they will only drive the ship faster and closer to the destination. Imagine that you are in a boat and it faces a great storm and you fear that you are lost. You're despairing for your life and you fear that the wind and the waves are driving you further and further from your destination and you spend all night worrying, terrified and then you fall asleep of incredible exhaustion, the exhaustion of being terrified and you're so sure that if you endure, if you last, if you don't die in that storm, what, at the, the very least what will happen is that you're driven so far off course that you are weeks and even months further behind in your journey. And then you wake up in the calm of the morning and you spot the shore of your destination because the waves only drove you closer. Dear church, this is what the Lord is doing with all the trials that have ever faced the church. The persecution of the Roman Empire. The fall of the Roman Empire. The persecution that the church has faced in China, 
the, the persecution that the church has faced in Europe, the persecution that the church is facing now in the West, this is not Christ losing. It's not driving us off course. It's not keeping us further from our destination. It's racing us there at lightning speed. We do not have to fear the storm because it's in God's hands. We can rest because He is restful. If He could trust in God, so too can we, dear church. We're also supposed to notice the concern of the shepherd, and you can see that here. What was the accusation of the disciples against Jesus? Did you notice what that that accusation was? Do you not care that we're perishing? Now, these disciples believed in God. They weren't atheists. They knew there was a God. They believed Christ was from God. He was God's representative. They even believed maybe that he was God at that time. Later, they certainly did. But to charge him with not caring was to charge God with not caring. They knew the connection between him and God. Dear friends, the danger of the church is not the storm. The storm is not actually the danger. But the temptation in the storm to despair of God's love and concern in the storm. Recall the parable of the sower, the heat of the sun, the persecution, and the temptation of the thorns and weeds. These are like the wind and the waves hitting the church. It is to turn our eyes off of Christ. And in these trials and temptations, we must see that God is not only sovereign, that these waves are from his hand, but that he is also good. These disciples knew that the wind and waves were in God's hand and he could definitely do something if he wanted to. And they were upset Because though God was able, he wasn't willing to do something. Are these waves not from him? Does he not care? Dear church, this is our temptation. When we face waves, the waves aren't the threat. The threat is in our own hearts that we would accuse God of not caring when trials and temptations come to us. And the remedy for that is in Romans 8.31. What, sh- what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know God's for us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, not also graciously give us all things? Dear church, if God was able to withhold something good from us. If something was just too good, too precious to him to give to us. Something that's so undeserved, they don't deserve that. If he was going to hold one thing back from us, he would have started withholding back Christ from us. But he didn't. And therefore we know that all things which come from his hand, even good and even evil things, are not a pause in his sovereignty in giving us good things. Even those are him actually giving us good things. 
The concern of the shepherd is something we need to remember. We know he's sovereign, but he also is concerned. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And after he does that, after the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep, there's no need to doubt his goodness for us anymore. Everything that comes after that, we can be confident that he is not only able, but concerned. He leads us by still waters, we sang. But he also leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is in both of those places. His concern for us is not greater in one and less than the other. Last, we need to see the correction. No, not last. Sorry, second last. We see the correction of the creator. First, first Jesus corrects creation, and then he corrects the church. Do you see that? First, he corrects creation, then he corrects the church. So first, his voice rebukes the wind and the sea. Now, anybody can speak to the wind and the sea. Anybody can do that. Anybody can start yelling at water and wind. But only God can actually rebuke them. Only he, only he can actually rebuke them. Only, they can, only it is him that, they, that by, by him can they be rebuked. And what we've seen already, we need to see again, is that this is not going from chaos to control. It's going from a controlled storm to a controlled calm. Jesus, by calming the storm, was showing that he was already in control beforehand. The sea and the wind were already in God's control, and that's why they listened to his voice. But then he turns to correct the church. Now, what was he correcting the church from? Was he correcting the church of being afraid of storms? Is fear sinful? Is it, is it sinful to be afraid of things like cancer and lightning? Now, it's possible. You'd have to get, dig down into your heart. But it's not automatic. Because our fear of things like death and lightning and electricity and falling off cliffs, that's actually part of God's common grace to everyone. That he would put in us an aversion to those things. We don't like them. We should flee from those things that could, could take our lives or other people's lives. And then we would, he would give us emotion and energy and adrenaline to flow, flow through us to run from those things or to face a danger. So some fear is actually not sinful. But what is it that Jesus is rebuking in his disciples? Look again. At verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What they are rebuked for is their lack of trust in God's care for them. They accused God of a lack of love for permitting the storm when he obviously could have stopped it. And this, and for this, the church is rebuked. Not for being afraid, but in fear of accusing God of breaking his promises. They had sung those songs at synagogue and, and at the temple 
about God's unfailing love that takes his people through the storms. Those are in the Old Testament songs. And they, and now they're facing a storm and they're accusing God of not keeping that promise that they had always sung about as little boys in synagogue. His promise to keep them, to be with them, to love them and care for them. In that moment, it's like they, they thought, look, I'm a pretty wise person. And I can't see a good reason for this storm. And I'm at least as wise as God. And so if I can't see a good reason for this, if I can't see how this will be a loving thing, then it must not be a loving thing. And God is being unloving. God's wisdom cannot be so much greater than mine that this could be best. These cannot be waves that would bring me closer to the destination to the shore. Now, the Bible corrects us in this. And for the church, it's a loving correction. And we may see growing wind and waves facing the church. There is growing resentment and hatred by the world to the church. We see this with the pride revolution. We see this with the life and death revolution. We see this with the rise of Islam. We see this in atheistic governments. And the church's temptation is to say, God must not be in control. We must be losing. This, might be, this must be God losing. Boy, we really look forward to when God's in control. The harvest must be failing. The ship must be sinking. We see this waves inside, not just against, but inside the church. Churches embracing false teaching. Churches plainly disobeying God's word and having women as pastors and elders. Or pastors abusing women and children. Or churches embracing liberal racism with the woke ideology. Or churches embracing right-wing racism. Or churches embracing false prophecies. Is Christ losing? Are his hands off the reins and one day, oh, he'll grab them and won't that be a great day? No. Dear church, this is the plan and it's a good one. Because hands do need to be on the reins. And if Christ aren't on the reins right now, but soon, soon they will be. If Christ's hands are not right now on the reins, you will be tempted to disobey God in order to take control of the situation. You will be tempted to deny portions of scripture in order to protect yourself or protect the church. Because if Jesus isn't in control right now, I better be. Take matters into my own hands. And there are signs of a lack of trust in the sovereignty of God. And first of all, doing what is forbidden. Action that is forbidden. That is a sign that you're not trusting Christ is in control. But there's a second sign that you're not trusting the sovereignty of God. And that is failing to do what is commanded. Both action and inaction can be signs that the church does not trust Christ in the storm. That brings us to our last point, which is the quiet fear of the church. Now, the disciples were afraid when the storms came, and the disciples were filled with greater fear when the storm was stilled. Their fear shifted. Their fear shifted from the storm, and it shifted to Christ. 
And dear friends, this is exactly what needs to happen before someone can have rest. Your fear needs to go off of the storms that you face and it needs to rest on Christ. The fear of the Lord is lovely. It is calm and it is rest. We sing in amazing grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace my fears relieved. Dear friends, your fear needs to be taken off of whatever you are afraid of and put on Christ, on God. And then and only then can your fears be relieved. Only when your greatest fear is the God of the universe can your fears then be relieved by the gospel. The only thing I should be afraid of is God. To be afraid that I am an enemy of God and that he punishes his enemies and he rightly and justly does. And when he does punish his enemies, they do not cry out that they are innocent because they know they are not. And then if our fear is the Lord, the gospel can come and calm our fears. Yes, the Lord is the only one worthy to be afraid of. And he has given his son for me. My sin is forgiven. Why then would I be afraid if God is for me? All my sin is forgiven. I'm reconciled. Christ took the storm of the wrath of God on the cross for me. And he calmed it with his resurrection. Dear church, the threats to the church that we are currently facing are now listening to God's voice. They will come and go when he pleases. Governments will rise and fall at his decree. Diseases will come and go when he wants them to. Earthquakes will come when he wants them to. Cancer will come when he wants it to. And in the middle of that, we can have the kind of calm that Christ had while he was sleeping. Because it's all to drive the church to its destination. We can have calm in the middle of the storm. But one day, all of the threats themselves will be calmed. And we'll have calm, not just calm in the middle of the storm, we'll have calm in the middle of the calm. How do we endure the storm? We trust all that he has said. We trust all the things that we know he has said. Now you might be a new believer and you might be an old believer. This might be new to you and it might be old hat to you. And if you're a new believer, there's less things that you know that Christ has said. Less promises and comforts and calms that he gives to you. How do we handle the storm? We put our eyes on the promises. We already know that he has made. And we learn more of what he has said. And everything else we learn, we, we are hungry for more of those promises, to learn more of those promises in his word. And every single time we learn them, we resolve to trust them. And then we will, be grow, we will grow in our ability to weather those storms. Oh, Ephesians 4 is a beautiful, a beautiful text to end on. Because it gives us instruction 
instruction for how the church would weather this storm. Go to Ephesians 4. We'll start at verse 10. And when we read it, I want you to look for the storm and wave analogy because it's right there. Storms and waves. Ephesians 4 verse 10. I should turn there myself. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Dear church, he promises he will bring us home. The the, the church here is compared to a great ship. A great ship on the ocean. And he promises to bring her home. And the waters, the waves do not need to rock the boat. Even though they are rough seas. And here there is the call to embrace maturity. Yes, our faith should be childlike. But it shouldn't be childish faith. Childlike faith means that whatever our dad says, we trust. And we might only know a little. And we might want to know more, and we're satisfied with whatever he tells us, but we always want to know all that he has said so that we would grow in maturity. What is the advantage to the church growing in maturity? What is the advantage of that? So that she doesn't fall for stupid lies. When that wave of false doctrine comes against her, she is not rocked by it because she already knows enough from God's word not to be led by that stupid lie. She trusts in the sovereignty of God. She believes his promise. She knows his law is good. His design for humans and men and women are good. She knows how much he loves life and hates death. And she knows that he is sovereign. And she knows that no tricks of the church can gain more converts. The only thing that can win them is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when that wave hit the church of pragmatism and secret sensitivism. Oh, no, no, we got to get rid of doctrine. and We need to change our message to appeal to more people. The church should have been mature. No, we will not be rocked by that. We will trust the sovereignty of God and the gospel of God, and we will only do what he has commanded us. The church could have weathered that storm without rocking and taking a whole generation to steady after that. It is a quiet fear. Each trusting in the Lord and in his word 
each of us telling our brothers and sisters more of the Word of God. And when we see each other straying ever so slightly from taking our, eye, taking our eyes off of Christ, we warn each other. Resolve to grow in our knowledge of the gospel. Not straying from the gospel. Okay, we can move on from Christ's death. No, holding firmly to that and growing deeper and deeper in our understanding that the church, the boat, is the body and bride of Christ. And to deny her would be to deny himself. And he will not fail in that task his father gave him. To die for that bride and to take her home. Your church, he can be trusted. He can be trusted in the storm because he's in control of it. And he loved us enough to die for us. Let us trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we are not on our own little dinghy trying to cross into heaven by our own paddling, by our own good works, by avoiding sin and by doing enough good things to save ourselves. Lord, what foolishness. We are grateful that Christ has grabbed us while we were enemies, given us faith, died for our sins, and then transferred us into the kingdom that only he deserves. We are grateful for the way that you have shown yourself to be in control of the waves through church history. Lord, here we are in a land that your people didn't even know existed when you made these promises. And yet we're praising the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, facing great wind and turbulence, absolutely, and yet confident that we will not be driven off course. Lord, we pray. We know you'll be faithful, but we pray that as you are faithful to keep your promises and bring that church, your church, safely home, that we would not rock back and forth and be swayed by all these things, but Lord, that we would want to be steady, trusting in your sovereignty, fearing you, and therefore being calm. Lord, for those who are not yet yours, Lord, give them eyes to see the great waves of your wrath that are billowing against them. Give them eyes to see that, that they might run to Christ. And have true sleep, true rest. Eager to receive what he deserves rather than what they deserve. Lord, we pray that this journey would come to an end very soon. And that Christ would come. In Jesus' name, amen.